Gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for indeed you are our strength, our rock, our redeemer. Amen. As many of you may know by now, Julie and I like to take Monday as my day off. My weekend, in fact, begins in about four hours. Tonight we're going to go to a movie, enjoy some time away from, from busyness and all the work that there is in ministry, and spend the day to go together tomorrow. Last Monday, uh, we slept late. First time we'd done that in a long time. Woke up kind of slow, and Julie decided to make a big breakfast. We had uh, uh, eggs and bacon, and she found this coffee cake that she'd kept stored away and pulled that out too. So we had just a wonderful breakfast. And while we were finishing it up, she looked at me and she said, now tell me again, what's your sermon series? What's the topic coming up this next Sunday? I said, oh, uh, it's Psalm 40. I waited patiently for the Lord. She said, and what part of your life is going to illustrate that point? <laughs> yes, I finished my coffee cake in silence and had nothing really to say. Even my mom decided to, uh, to give a little bit of advice. You might have seen her post on my, on my Facebook page. I, by the way, do moms ever stop giving advice? How old do you have to be before that stops? She posted on Facebook, patience is hard, but can be rewarding. Thank you, Mom. Thank you very much. I also received an email on Friday from a church member who, who wrote to me to say that she wants patience and she wants it now. <laughs> I can appreciate that very, very, very much. And then I received an email uh, late yesterday. And I decided to work it into my notes. I, I, I thought it had a, a, a beautiful point. He's a member of our church. He wrote, patience is the end result of trying too hard and becoming totally exasperated and finally letting go and surrendering to the will of God. That's pretty good. He didn't even go to seminary. Finally, just finally letting go and surrendering to the will of God. I suspect our poet this morning might, might appreciate those words himself. The, the initial uh, words in the first couple of verses there, especially when he uses the phrase, uh, the miry bog, is an indication, it's an ancient metaphor for, for a disease leading almost to death. He feels as though he's stuck, sinking into the mud of life, as it were. And yet somehow, through his own patient waiting, maybe he finally, like my emailer, just gave up and waited for God. He's saved. He's taken away from the edge of death and given a new start, a, a new life. But I wondered, though, on Tuesdays of my sermon preparation week, I do what uh, some people call a blind reading. I open the Bible, open the text, and I just read it. No commentaries, no scholarly notes, none of that sort of thing on the first reading. I just want to read it, maybe, maybe experience it the way you hear it on a Sunday morning. So I did this blind reading on Tuesday, and I was a, I was a little bit irritated at, at the end of the reading. I thought this guy sounded a little too smug, a little too confident. I heard the words, I waited patiently for the Lord, and what I heard was a, a smug kind of arrogance of, look at me, look at how my life has gone so well. Do you know that kind of a person? Have you ever met someone like that, someone who always knows exactly what you need to do and has, uh, has advice whether you ask for it or not? About 20 years ago, I was at a retreat with a group of ministers. And there were three of us who were in our early 30s. We were clearly the youngest guys there. And a couple of us had talked about how glad we were to be there with these uh, wise and, and some of them very aged, uh, uh, very experienced pastors just to, to, 
just to learn from them and listen to them. And we had some issues that we wanted to bring up about things we were facing in our own ministry. But this other guy who was young like us, about the same age, every time we'd bring up an issue, he'd jump in and give us an answer. Oh, here's the way I've dealt with that. Here's how my ministry has worked. Now, here's why this, and we just kind of finally said, you know, we want to hear from the collected wisdom of the room. Well, maybe you've encountered somebody like that. So that, like I said, this, this poet this morning, this psalmist, he kind of hit me wrong at the beginning. But the more I read, the more I realized how wrong I was in my interpretation and my understanding. I try to do a blind reading three times, read it out loud three times, and then make notes about what I'm hearing. He really isn't offering smug, simplistic advice. He's acknowledging his own life and the experiences that he's had. He was at death's door. He prayed patiently, healing, a new life, a, a new start came. He thanks God for it. And then, then I don't know if you heard this as you read, because the language has a different sound to it than the way we normally speak, but he mentioned being filled with many iniquities. That's an old word, fancy word, means sin, failure, missing the mark. He's failed. He's done something wrong. And the way the, the, way the, the poetry follows, it, it seems as though he's been caught up in the same dumb mistakes over and over and over again. What, what was it exactly? We don't know. But it's clear that he stumbled and fallen. And what helped him get through it? The grace, forgiveness, and ongoing love of God. I, and it, really, I should have titled this sermon, The Patience of Grace, because it's the patience of God, the patience of God's grace, of God's willingness to forgive us over and over and over again that has helped this person re-experience life. Is your life like that sometimes? You, one moment, you're experiencing everything wonderful and it's amazing, and the next moment, you do something dumb and you think, how could I, how could I have fallen again? But this psalmist lets us know that the patience of God is God's willingness to forgive again and again and again and again. And that ultimately, this allows the writer to begin a life that matters. I think perhaps the single most important lesson here for the church is our ongoing call to practice the, the patience of God's grace. And there are a couple of pretty good reasons for that. Number one, chances are pretty good you're going to need forgiveness sometime. And so am I. Number two, chances are pretty good that you're going to need to forgive someone sometime. Maybe soon. Maybe a few days from now. But sometime. Forgiveness is at the heart of everything we do in the church. And that forgiveness might need to be extended to someone even in this congregation. The prayer of Psalm 40. Let your steadfast love, God, save me forever because my sin has overtaken me is not a bad place for every church member to live. I, I know we don't talk a lot about sin, and that's fine. Please, please, mean that I don't, I, I, please know that I don't mean this in a judgmental sinners in the hands of an angry God kind of way. No, 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 that's not Christian. But sometimes in order to grow, we have to face the hard reality and the truth of who we are and the mistakes that sometimes many of us make. I'm landing here for, for a moment simply so we can acknowledge that we all live by the grace of God, period. That knowledge shapes not only our lives, our individual lives, but it shapes our congregation. It shapes the way we interact with each other. Everything, 
Everything we do in this church, from the governing board to Camp Akita to the Mission Council to Heart to Heart to everything else, the spiritual searcher work, everything we do must be understood within the confines of God's grace, of God's forgiveness, of God's love. It determines how we behave, maybe most especially in those serious, tense moments when tough decisions are being made. Grace, forgiveness, love must be the boundaries that border the work that we do. And so we name our need for forgiveness as a pathway to a new life. I love the words of Brendan Manning. He writes, Jesus loves us as we are and not as we should be, since none of us is as we should be. Let me say that again. Jesus loves us as we are and not as we should be, since none of us is as we should be. He wrote that in one of his first books. A woman in her late 30s came to Father Brennan at a spiritual life retreat that he was leading in San Jose. He, she said to him, that single line saved my life. You know, I, I suspect that the harshest critic the most judgmental person you and I ever face is the one we see in the mirror. Because that one looking back at us, he or she can see every, every crack and wrinkle in your face, every flaw. He or she knows every mistake, every psychological and moral and spiritual flaw that you may have. The toughest critic we see is probably that person in the mirror. Maybe the person we need to have the most patience with that we need to remind of daily, of the love of God, is our very self, so that we then can become vessels of God's patient grace. Our lives are not saved by judgment and mean spiritness. We are saved by the undying love of God. I know we know this in our congregation. Last spring, I, I delivered a sermon series titled, Why Church? And before the series got started, I sent an email out to everyone in the congregation. I said, would you please write back to me and let me know your answer to this question? Why, why church? Why, why church? Especially this one. And I got many, many wonderful replies. I did get one from somebody who said, I'm no longer going to your church. Please take me off your list. Okay. <laughs> but my favorite one was the one that said, why church? Because the people in this congregation loved me when I was at my worst. That's the heart of who we are. That's the practice of God's patient grace. The danger comes when we no longer uh, practice this. Brennan Manning, the same man I quoted a moment ago, he tells a story about a public sinner, a man who was excommunicated for, for committing public sins. His church had kicked him right out. Well, this public sinner, he took his worries to God and he prayed to God, God, I'm a sinner and they won't let me in church. God replied, what's the big deal? They don't let me in there either. Yeah, it's not too funny. And it makes me squirm a little bit because I wonder, I wonder how many people aren't in church because of my own foolish, arrogant, judgmental behavior? How many people aren't in church because I've been more concerned about my own spiritual needs, my own stuff, about looking better than them? How many people aren't in church because of my failings. I doubt that I'm alone in this struggle. John Ortberg, a good preacher, says, many of us struggle not so much with understanding the message of forgiveness, but with living in the reality of it. We understand it. It's the living of forgiveness that is difficult. 
when we live within the reality of, of, our, of our need for forgiveness, we'll see the rest of the world through the same light. We'll experience something of what the Apostle Paul ca- calls living in Christ. He wrote to the church in Rome and said to them, when you are in Christ, God's forgiveness, God's love, God's mercy and grace will envelop you continually, constantly, whether you're in worship or out in the community. It's a beautiful way to live in Christ. Uh, There was a young man who was in his mid-20s who had had never been to church. He wasn't anti-religion. He wasn't anti-Christianity. He just wasn't a church person, wasn't a part of his family, wasn't a part of his practice. And then one day, some of his friends said, hey, we're a part of this church. Why don't you join us? Went with with his friends on a Sunday morning, heard a message of of grace and hope, heard wonderful music, saw people who seemed to love each other and enjoy being with each other, and he kind of got caught up in the, the spirit of it. A few weeks later, He asked if he could join the church. He said, I've never been a Christian, but I want to confess my faith. I want to become a part of of the life of Christ. He was just filled with joy and excitement. Of course, the church welcomed him, and he became a full member, as you might expect. And then he heard some folks talking about how what we need to do is we need to get out in the community more. We need to share our story more, let people know. And so not knowing any other other way to do it, he decided he would go door to door, you know, knocking on doors and then share his testimony, what he'd experienced in this church. Not in a mean-spirited kind of, you're going to burn forever if you don't. No, not that, no. But just to share his excitement and his joy. And in his church, he knew that they loved, they loved caring for the poorest of the poor, that they had a ministry in one of the toughest uh, poverty-stricken areas of their community. And so he decided, that's where I'll go first. I'll go there. Took the bus downtown, came up to this rather dilapidated apartment building, walked into the main floor, could hear a baby crying behind the door that he came up to. But nonetheless, he knocked. Door opened. There was a young woman standing there with a naked baby in her arm, crying. She was smoking a cigarette. She said, what do you want? He said, "Uh, I've just experienced this beautiful faith and I'd like to share. She said something terrible to him, swore at him, slammed the door in his face. He was dejected. He couldn't believe it. He, He thought people could get excited about this message that he was bringing. And He went outside, he sat down on the curb and dejected, didn't know what to do, waited, sat there, wondered. He he said to himself, how can I share this message? I've got so much good news, so much I want to tell people about the the love and the forgiveness I've experienced in this community. What what can I do? And then he looked up, he saw a couple blocks away, there was a a convenience store. And so he walked down there, he bought a big package of diapers, kind of guessed on the size. And he picked up a carton of cigarettes. And he went back and he knocked on her door. She opened it again. Before she could say anything, he slid the cigarettes and the diapers into the door. She invited him in. He'd never put a diaper on a baby before, but she helped, he helped the, the mom with the baby. Got the baby all cleaned up and diapered. She pulled out the carton of cigarettes and he'd never smoked before, but she offered him one. He thought, well, what the heck? Might as well. He lit up a... <laughs> Lit up, a, lit up a cigarette and had two or three or four that afternoon. They just talked about various things, what it's like living here, what, are you, what can you do, how can we help, what are some other various things. And finally she just said to him, with the smoke filling around his head, why are you here? Why'd you knock on my door? And he said, I've discovered something in this message of Jesus that excited me and, and, and thrills me, and I want to help you and do anything and everything I can. She said, I've never heard anybody talk about him before. Would you tell me? Would you tell me about him? He told her everything he knew about Jesus, and it took him five minutes. (laughs) And at the end, she said, would you pray for me and my baby? 
Pray for us that we'll survive, that we'll get out of here alive. Will you pray for us? That's the church. That's the patience of grace. We come not only with a, with a good word of hope, of grace, forgiveness, of love. We come, if we need to, with a, back, a package full of diapers and a carton of cigarettes. Why? Because we come with the good news that does not only just bless you and pat you on the back, but also invites you to a new life, to do whatever we can. Oh, by the way, I need to let you know, I used that story. I was a guest preacher at a church about 10 years ago. I used that story in the, in, in the sermon there. They, I got a note three days later in the mail from someone saying, I really don't like that you uh, emphasize the sin of smoking in your sermon. I put that, that letter in a file that I labeled Adventures in Missing the Point. Just put it right in there. <laughs> you see, because we're called as the church to go wherever God's love calls us, to bring a helping hand, to do all we can to patiently help folks find a new life. That's why we go to the Back Bay Mission down in Biloxi, Mississippi. I learned a whole lot about that last week. Went to the shrimp boil on Friday night. Heard uh, uh, Alice Graham talk about the work that she's leading down there at Back Bay Mission. We go there in the name of Jesus to judge, never. To do what we can to patiently and consistently help our sisters and brothers there find their way out of poverty to a full life. Alice told us, she said, sometimes these folks, some of their old bad habits come circling back around. Sometimes these folks, some of the dumb mistakes they made come back and hit them again. And then she said, she was speaking at the North Campus, she looked right at us and she said, you know what? You know about their stories because frankly, they're just like you. I was sitting right there in the front row and I gotta tell you, I needed to hear her words. All of us know what it's like to be in life suddenly pulled down by our own dumb mistakes, our own stupid circumstances. What she said, what we need to remember is that every one of us is in need of the patience of grace. And, and therein lies the key to this text and, and really to this sermon. Every one of us is in need of love and forgiveness. It's Fred Craddock who said, the survival of the church depends on a constant state of forgiveness, spoken and unspoken. There's great truth there. In the middle of the psalm, the poet says, burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then he said, here I am. Now, we don't talk a lot about burnt offering and sin offering. That's probably not something you woke up this morning thinking, hmm, I wonder if Glenn's going to talk about sin offerings and what that looks like. Those are just elements of ancient Hebrew worship. He's talk he could be talking about the offertory or the doxology or the opening hymn or the call to worship. What he's saying is, God isn't concerned with my worship and the style that I practice as much as God wants me. What God wants more than anything is him, his heart, his life, his love. Now, now, let me be clear. I love our worship. I love the way the music here can just seem to carry us to another dimension. I find myself week after week after week being caught up in the solo, being moved by the hymns that we sing, the beauty of the pastoral prayers. All of that just is an enriching and an amazing experience here. But ultimately, what God wants more than all of that is you, your heart your soul, your mind. What God wants is you. You see, part of the problem with modern Christianity is the fact that we've, 
We've defanged the truth. We've turned Jesus into our little buddy who pats us on the back and prays for our team and then gets out of the way and doesn't really disturb us or, or check the way we live. Mike, my, my buddy Mike says that the love and forgiveness that Jesus proclaims isn't some nice, safe, religious concept. It's a wild, dangerous, shocking, upsetting, uncomfortable, daring truth. A truth that will change your life and mine. It will take our church to heights we've never seen before. If we can embrace that truth, put it to practice in our lives, not just here on Sundays, but every day, Monday through Saturday, and that truth, this beautiful truth, is that God is shockingly ready to love and forgive everyone even you, even me. When that truth guides us, not just our church will be transformed, the whole world will be changed. Amen.